It is my distinct privilege to be before you today. And without further ado, let's go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are here because we know that you are in control. You are sovereign. Your plans cannot be frustrated. Lord, help us to submit ourselves to you and to your good providence. Lord, prick our hearts and awake us from our slumber. Arouse us to submit ourselves to you. And as we think about the persecuted church, arouse us to pray for them, to think of them more than we think about the election or whether or not refugees should come into this country. Help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As Pastor Jeremy just mentioned, and as many of you know, election day is coming up soon. And when you're running for political office, you shake a lot of hands. You outline your plans and speeches, and you make a lot of promises. In the presidential race, both major candidates have the perhaps disgruntled backing of their parties. Lots of money, and they are very powerful people. On the campaign trail, they give outlines for their visions for the country and boast about how great of a president they'll be once they get elected. As the race winds down to a close, both candidates are outwardly confident that they will indeed be the next president of the United States. Yet for all of their power, money, and promises, their plans cannot be implemented without one thing, the will of the people. In our democracy, no matter how powerful a person is, they must submit themselves to be selected by its citizens. Let's turn today to James chapter 4, or in verses 13 through 17. Starting at verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Last week in the first 12 verses of chapter 4, we got a stern warning about worldliness and a command to submit to God. Our big idea for, t for today, instead of boasting about tomorrow, we are to submit our future plans to the Lord's will. 
So this is the main thing we should be asking ourselves when we're thinking about planning, which this uh, passage talks much about. How should Christians approach planning? I mean, whatever it is in life, we should wonder, how should a Christian approach this? We should not assume or presume that the way that we would naturally approach it is the way that we, in fact, should approach it. So how should a Christian approach planning? I see a few things that are really uh, prominent in this passage that we can look to today. Uh, First point, we shouldn't think that we're in complete control. Now, why shouldn't we? There are a few reasons. The first one is that it's arrogant. We see this in verse 13 and also a little bit later in the passage. Verse 13 says, come now. James is telling his readers to listen up. Pay close and careful attention to what I'm about to say. The people James is talking to are most likely business people, probably traveling merchants. They need to make plans. They're business people. After being in business for a while, you get really good at knowing the market. You start getting better and better at matching your inventory with consumer trends, which means less risk and more reward. But what's wrong with this picture? What's wrong with planning and being confident in your projections, which have been honed through years of experience in your industry? The planning and confidence and the success of these plans were done apart from God. That's what these people have missed. The verbs go, spend, trade, and make are all future indicative. So it could very well be translated, we will go, we will spend, we will trade, and we will make a profit. This person has gone from simply making a projection to making a pronouncement. This is not exclusive to unbelievers, unfortunately. Christians are in view in this verse. People who have some financial independence have a sense of control and really start drinking the Kool-Aid that it is and always has been completely up to me. Now, lest you think your bank account exempts you from this temptation, think about the last time you prayed for your daily bread. I mean, honestly, when's the last time you, you went to the Lord and said, God, just provide for me what I need for today? If you're honest, we all very often fall victim to just being on autopilot, just cruising through life and presuming that things will go the way that we envision them. But the problem, friends, is that this is arrogant. It's an exaggeration of our own abilities. It also ignores our limitations. We see this in verse 14. All of the certainty and boasting in verse 13 meets cold, hard reality in verse 14. Verse 14 mentions that, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. I mean, very simply, we don't know the future. While the people who say these things in verse 13 made pronouncements about what will happen, they actually had no idea what even tomorrow will bring. 
Not knowing the future is so central to what it means to be a human that suspense is a central part of most of our entertainment. I mean, think about it. A cliffhanger at the end of an episode of your favorite show only works, why? Because you don't know what's going to happen. It is so universal that everyone is encouraged to get various forms of insurance. Life jackets, unused backup generators, and unscheduled maintenance all attest to what is a universal human trait. We simply don't know the future. Another limitation that this ignores is our frailty and life's brevity. So these people may think that they are going to reap these profits next year, but they may not even make it past Thanksgiving. James point out, not only do we not know the future, but our time on the planet is incredibly short in the grand scheme of things. James uses a good illustration of myths to point out how brief life is. In Greek, the same root word is used for the words appears and vanishes in the ESV. It's, it's a play on words. Just as quickly as the mist appears, it disappears. Children, think about in the wintertime, if you breathe on a really cold day, you see a little bit of mist, right? I have a question for you. How long is the mist there? I mean, by the time you get to one Mississippi, it's gone, and you don't even think about it anymore. You're on to the next breath, but I mean, the, that breath was already gone. It's so quick. As soon as it appears, it vanishes. Augustine says, restoring health for a time to a man's body amounts to no more than extending his breath for a little while longer. This is how we are really to think of our lives, of our frailty, of our mortality. We aren't the captains of our own souls, and we aren't in control of everything. This reminds me of Jesus' parable about the rich fool in Luke 12, 13 through 21. In that parable, the fool only thought of how well he had done and how we needed to make plans for the future. He did not acknowledge the Lord and his plans. He was consumed enjoying his spoils and wrongly presumed that he would be around to enjoy them for a long, long time. He's called a rich fool because he thought he had more control than what he actually did. Instead of acknowledging the Lord and living with an eye towards eternity, he thought merely of making his home here without the thought of the Lord. Lastly, boasting about tomorrow is evil. We see that in verse, 13, in verse 16. It ignores God. In case you think this is a mere oversight, like failing to mention one of your producers when receiving a Grammy, or failing to CC your boss on an email, James once again brings some sobriety to the situation. Your planning without acknowledging God is arrogant and proud. And if that's not enough, he says all such boasting is evil. As Pastor Jeremy showed last week, and Pastor Adam has been showing us all throughout this series, James presents the situation, discusses how it's inconsistent with God's way, 
and reinforces that by showing us how ungodly it is. And James has a knack for really laying everything out on the line and laying our souls bare. And when we're confronted with it, it's not a pretty picture. James won't let us off the hook by merely saying it's less than ideal. It's arrogant. It's evil. It's completely inconsistent with following the Lord. As we learned last week, God resists the proud, but what? Gives grace to the humble. Instead of boasting in self, boast in the Lord. Not all boasting is bad. There, are, there is some boasting that is actually good, and boasting in the Lord is one of those things. Why boast in the Lord? Well, this is the thrust of the gospel. Our frailty, we are weak. We could not save ourselves. We were God's enemies, and yet God sent Christ when we could not save ourselves, and he lifted us up. God gives grace to the humble. We should boast in that. We should boast in the fact that we serve a great God who saves wicked sinners. Thinking of one of the songs that we sang earlier, think, think about the confidence we sang, he will hold me fast. That's the kind of boasting that we can do. We are confident that no one can pluck us out of God's hands because he will hold us fast. He loves us so much. He gave his only son and God fulfills his promises. Second major point, we should submit to God's providence. Instead, you ought to, that's how uh, this next part starts off. This gives the indication that the people James is describing are indeed Christians. We of all people should acknowledge God first and always. He should be at the forefront of our minds. But Christians can be seduced to worldliness when, and we often need a wake-up call which James sets out to give. Now listen up. Instead of boasting in your arrogance and ignorance, speak as one with understanding. James is here to correct wrong thinking and wrong action. Unlike humans who don't know the future and are only here briefly on earth, God is vastly different. He knows the future because he's sovereign. He's actually in control. He is never taken by surprise. He's never caught off guard. He never has to adjust. As we think about the presidential election, we're reminded of, I think, what Pastor Jeremy mentioned earlier, how he raises up kings and he takes kings down. We see this in Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35, where King Nebuchadnezzar, the great king which conquered much of the known world at that time, the Israelites were actually there under captivity with him. He was very, very proud, but God showed him himself by having him to be out of his right mind. He was eating like an animal, eating grass, and was literally out of his mind. When he came to his senses because God uh, brought the kingdom back to himself, this is what King Nebuchadnezzar had to say, speaking of God. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. 
All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? To say if the Lord wills is to recognize that God is sovereign over all. Things only happen because he wills them to happen. And if he doesn't allow them, they will not happen. As a response to this passage, some can add a phrase like, Lord willing, when thinking about their plans. And that's actually a pretty good reminder, um, just as you're talking about things, to just say, Lord willing. That may help to just remind you of, uh, of God's power and God's control of everything. But at the same time, it may miss the broader point being made by James. The Lord is not after magic words, but a submitted and humble heart. So you can still say, um, this is my plan, and at the same time, know deep down that all of my plans are subject to God's approval, and without them, nothing will happen. Unlike the rich fool, we are not to take our lives for granted. Our lives are gifts from our Heavenly Father who sustains us moment by moment. Now, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't make plans. James' response to these boastful merchants was not, go live haphazardly. The problem in this passage was not a plan or even profit, but man's pride. When we look at Proverbs 3, chapter 5 and 6, I mean, verses 5 and 6, we see this passage. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. This is what we're talking about here. In all of your ways acknowledging him, knowing that he is in control, knowing that he is sovereign. Proverbs 19:21. Many are the plans of the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. This is exactly, once again, what we're talking about. We can have plans, but we are to know deep down that it is the Lord's purposes that will always stand. What about some application? How are we to think about this? Well, this comes into play with the school you want to attend. You may really have your heart set on going to this school or that school, whether it's a, a, a elementary school or a college. Submit those plans to the Lord. What about a job that you want to get? Either you're out of work or you're just looking for a better job. You desperately want it. You know that you've interviewed well. We are to submit those plans to God. Whether it's how you plan to raise your children or how you plan to spend your time in retirement, submit those plans to the Lord. While our plans may not always work out as we expect, his plans are never frustrated. Well, how about us at RGBC? We have many plans. We want to impact the community. We want to do great things in this community. We want the Lord's name and his fame to ring out throughout this area. 
We want a permanent location, right? For the people who are on the setup team, it's difficult getting up and being here at seven o'clock in the morning every Sunday and setting up everything so that we can sit uh, comfortably, uh, maybe too comfortably for some of you. Um, but a permanent location would be nice. We're looking at that. What about our church plants? We have a church plant uh, that will eventually happen in New York with the Fernandeses, and we wanna do more church plants in the area. One thing to remember is that the church is God's idea. He plans to build it. And the devil, nor the government, nor humanism, or apathy will be able to prevail against it. We can boast in what he will do. I think of that Syrian pastor. And he said, it's bad that ambassadors have left, but it would be much worse if heaven's ambassadors left. He considered it a privilege to stay. Now, this is where the rubber meets the road in difficult circumstances and difficult situations when we're acknowledging God. I'm sure his plan, you know, five, six, seven, eight years ago, and many other Christians who stayed in that area, their plans were not, I will be here and be persecuted. I will be under threat. I will lose my home. My family could be ripped apart from me. That's probably not what they were thinking. But even in the midst of chaos and difficulty, they acknowledge the Lord. They say, well, wait a second here. It's not merely about my own life. My life is but a vapor anyway. Instead, this is a great time and a great opportunity. The Lord has me here to share the gospel in a time where things look absolutely hopeless for everyone around us as people are being killed, that the gospel is here that the fragrance of Christ and of the kingdom is around. This is what it looks like to acknowledge God in everything we do. Now we come to verse 17. Verse 17 reminds us of some of the earlier parts in James. One, it reminds us of those who are hearers of the word but not doers. This seems to be a similar sort of thing. Uh, after many sections in James, he wraps it up by really emphasizing and wanting his recipients to put what he's saying into practice. He doesn't want us to have faith without works. He doesn't want us to see a brother and sister in need and say, be warm and filled. That's not what he's after. Instead, he wants true change. He wants us to live out the faith. So what is the good here in our text? Well, it is this. It is that we are to reject the modern delusion which sees God as, even if he exists, irrelevant to life. And this being done, we are to embrace the truth that our life is short and we have no control over its brief span, finally saying with all our hearts, God willing. More broadly, this verse mentions sins that are referred to as sins of omission. So my non-Christian friends, you may think that you're good enough for God because you haven't done something really terrible. You haven't killed anybody. You haven't committed some heinous felony. 
But God is concerned about more than just what you do. He's also concerned about what you haven't done. That is a sobering fact when you think of all of the many, many things that you could have done, all the people that you have passed by who you could have helped, all the times when you could have told the truth or helped your mom or dad or um, given of yourself that we did not. These are all sins of omission and God will hold us responsible even for those. For my non-Christian friend, I implore you, don't think you're good enough. You simply aren't. God is a holy and just God. He will not lower his standard and grade on the curve so that you can get in. Instead, his standard remains high. Now, that's a, a bleak picture because if he keeps that standard up high, then we all fail. I don't know about you, but in college, I was in many classes where there was no curve. And sometimes only one person got a B. Many times I got a C. <laughs> but this is the kind of situation except much worse. There is no A's, there is no B, there is no C, there is no passing grade. This is all failure. None are worthy. None are good. No, not one. But we also have in the gospel the greatest example of God interrupting our plans. And that happens when a person is born again. Thankfully, this sovereign God has willed to save wicked sinners. When we were going our own way, doing sins of commission, sins of omission, selfishly living out our lives, God interrupted. In Ephesians 1, 3 through 5, we see, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. This is the sort of God we serve, where his will is for our good. So we can joyfully submit to him. We don't have to worry, we don't have to try to hold things back. We know by submitting to him, not only is it true, this is just reality, but it's also good. We can take great comfort knowing that even as things go awry and our plans are frustrated, that the God who is in control loves us and he has our good in mind. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to turn to him today. Turn away from wicked planning, worldly planning, and trust him. He won't let you down. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are in awe of you. We are in awe of who you are and how massive your control is. We are bewildered at how you can know everything and watch everything. 
And at the same time, we are most bewildered that you would save any of us. You know the depths of our hearts. You knew how wicked we were before salvation. And yet in your love, you saved us. Lord, I pray that you would help us today as a congregation, that we would be known as people who submit everything to you, that we hold nothing back, that we don't live lives on autopilot, sinfully presuming that what we say will happen will actually happen. Instead, let us be people who are characterized by humility and characterized by a, a quiet confidence, boasting in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.